Chemical weapons, like gas, were used to demoralize, maim, and kill soldiers during World War I. The big ones were tear gas, phosgene, chlorine, and mustard gas, but there were many others, some that saw only niche use, and some that were rifts on those four reliable go-tos. But even though World War I is kind of famous for being a war that involved these new technologies, and even though if you only know a few things about the war, One of those things that you know, probably, is that everyone was being gassed in their trenches all the time and were constantly putting on their gas masks. Only about 90,000 of the 1.2 million deaths during World War I were caused by gas. And of those 90,000, about 85% of those were by one gas, by phosgene. Though mustard gas became the best known because it took a long time to kill a soldier who had inhaled it or been exposed to it. But it had numerous other effects on victims. It blistered their skin, it hurt their eyes, and it caused a great deal of vomiting. It would also cause them to start bleeding both internally and externally, and would strip the mucous membrane from their bronchial tubes, which was extremely painful and it could also lead to death weeks later. This delay of death and the ability to use mustard gas without necessarily killing everyone in its area of effect made it more precise in some cases than phosgene or chlorine. Gas was also used in World War II, but to a very limited degree, primarily by the Axis powers and primarily off the battlefield. They used it in their concentration camps and on primarily non-combatants, and non-lethal gases were used to clamp down on conquered locals. The Allies avoided using chemical weapons almost completely during World War II, and the few times when it was documented as having been used, it's thought to have been an accident. Deadly chemical weapons have been used only about a dozen times since then, in large part due to the protocol for the prohibition of the use in war of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases and of bacteriological methods of warfare, otherwise known as the Geneva Protocol. This was signed in 1925 and went into effect in 1928 and was just one protocol in the larger Convention for the Supervision of the International Trade in Arms and Ammunition and Implements of War that was passed through the League of Nations, which was a precursor to today's United Nations. The Geneva Protocol prohibited the use of asphyxiating, poisonous, or other gases, and of all analogous liquids, materials, or devices, and bacteriological methods of warfare, but it didn't say anything about the production, storage, or transfer of these weapons, which meant that although mustard gas was barely ever used post-World War I, Most nations had a stockpile of the stuff, nonetheless. Now later, the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention and the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention did address the production, storage, and transfer of these sorts of weapons. And today, this collection of treaties, which is usually referred to in shorthand as just the Geneva Protocol, is understood to be a general ban on the use of chemical and biological weapons. Which all sounds great, except that it's worth remembering that the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 also 
outlawed the use of weaponized chemical agents. So it's nice that they're trying to make sure that this kind of thing never happens again. But it's also anything but certain. We've been here before. Such regulations have been bypassed before. And there's always the chance that they could be bypassed again. What I want to talk about today is what makes things like chemical weapons different from other types of weapons, and why we treat this subclass of killing mechanism differently from how we treat others, and how that question and some potential answers to it also translate to other non-military, non-killing related aspects of life. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show, which means I'm able to put this together each week because of you guys. Thank you so very much to everyone who has contributed in some way. That means a great deal to me. I appreciate it. And thank you in advance if you're thinking of doing so in the future. Methods of contribution are many and varied. If you go to letsnotethings.com and click on the contribute page, you will find these options listed there. But many of them are probably familiar if you listen to podcasts in general. If you share this with a friend or on social media, if you leave a review up on iTunes, if you contribute monetarily through PayPal or Venmo, all of these things are very much appreciated. And you can also support this project by supporting my other work. If you go to colin.io, you will find a complete list of all the books I've written. And I have a new book that is coming out, if you're listening to this as it is first published, coming out next week on May 1st, here in 2017. The book is entitled Becoming Who We Need to Be. And if you enjoy this podcast and the topics covered here and the way in which they are covered, chances are you will enjoy this book. You can pre-order that now, or you can grab a copy, an ebook, paperback, or audiobook on May 1st. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you'll receive a substantial discount on Hostgator's already very reasonable prices. And the other sponsor today is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible, and you will receive a free audiobook of your choice. And if you are lacking a book to spend that credit on, Stay tuned till the end of this episode, and I will give a book recommendation. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today is actually one of many articles that I will be talking about, but this one of all of the articles that I'll be mentioning today is a good starting point in part because it's strongly related to something I've discussed at greater length in a past episode, and it's a very clear, almost cartoonish example of one of the bigger concepts that I want to address. So the article comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, North Korea Didn't Test a Nuclear Weapon, But It Did Try to Launch Another Missile. The article is about North Korea's recent Day of the Sun, which is a holiday in that country that celebrates the birthday of Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader, Kim Jong-un. 
and original founding dictator of the Kim regime that has ruled the northern portion of the Korean Peninsula since 1972 when he was elected by the Supreme People's Assembly, which was the North Korean parliament. After his death, Il-sung was given the honorific title Eternal President of the Republic, and his family maintains the personality cult that he built to this day. So on this year's Day of the Sun, the holiday that took place in 2017, on April 15th, it was expected that the country would maintain its other tradition of aggressive chest-thumping and conduct a nuclear weapons test, something that's been doing off and on for years, but which has recently re-emerged as a point of international interest, as politicians in the U.S. and in China have been exploring new avenues of cooperation and figuring out how their relationship will play out in the public sphere in addition to what actually takes place behind closed doors diplomatically. Instead of a nuclear weapons test, though, the North put on their usual parade of missiles and other weaponry, then timed a ballistic missile launch, a non-nuclear ballistic missile, for about the time that U.S. Vice President Mike Pence departed for South Korea where he was meant to visit with local politicians and sort through adjacent issues to those being discussed with China. The missile test didn't work, though, and the ballistic missile blew up about five seconds after it was launched. Now, what's interesting about this story is how many words were spilled about the potential for another nuclear test. Everywhere you looked in the press, it was nuke this, nuke that, what happens if they test again against everyone's wishes. These news outlets were almost a little disappointed, it seemed, that this nuclear test didn't happen. And that's not to say that I think any of them would wish for a nuclear conflict, or even a nuclear test-spurred conflict. But it makes for great writing, and for a lot of clicks, anytime you write about something nuclear weapons-related. And even the article that I'm starting from here, from the Washington Post, which is a generally highly reliable news source, all things considered, seems almost a little sulky in its tone, that things didn't go as planned, that the scandal abated and became something very mundane. No nukes, the article says. But at least they fired something, right? Anyone? Please don't leave. Please don't go read something else. That seems to be what's implied in the tone here. And this is, in a way, a continuously and consistently reliable tone to take when discussing nuclear weapons. Because nuclear weapons, above and beyond other types of weapons, are terrifying. They scare us. They represent something bigger than mere death and destruction and warfare. They take us to another world of possibilities. And those possibilities are almost universally dark and disturbing. And that makes for good reporting, and that makes people interested and keeps them clicking, which fits well into the current journalism business model. Now, as I mentioned, I did a whole episode on the broader strokes of this concept before, on nuclear diplomacy, focusing especially on North Korea. And that may be a good listen after this episode if you haven't heard it already and are curious about how nuclear policy influences international politics and how that operates, but I want to take the discussion in a different direction this week. We are watching North Korea closely because of their unpredictability and because of their nuclear program, 
most of the interactions we have with them on any level is an attempt to get them to stop their nuclear program. And that's true of much of the world except for China and a few other nations in the immediate vicinity. North Korea is treated kind of like a live wire. And it's smart to care about nuclear weapons, but that fixation often leaves out something else that's important to know. Namely, that the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is the official name of North Korea, has a massive conventional army. They have that today, already. No tests required. They have a lot of very powerful conventional artillery pointed at South Korea. Right across the border. Seoul is right there across the border from North Korea. And that's a city of 10 million people. And North Korea also has all kinds of regular missiles that can hit Japan, that can hit most of Asia, that can hit parts of Europe, that can hit parts of the United States. They can cause a whole lot of damage to a whole lot of people today. No nukes required. So why this fixation on their nuclear weapons program? A program that is potentially quite horrifying, but that somehow consistently overshadows an existing very real and concrete threat. What makes a nuclear weapon so different from a conventional weapon? Let's take a step back and ask that question in a slightly different way. Why was dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki worse than firebombing Tokyo? Now, based on what we're taught in school and based on the mythology of the atomic bomb, these events were non-equivalent. The atomic bomb changed everything, and dropping it was a cataclysmic, vital moment in history, for better and for worse, depending on what we're talking about. Seldom is the firebombing of Tokyo even mentioned when we're taught about the big picture of the beginning of the end of World War II. And yet the firebombing of Tokyo was massive in significance, but somehow has become dull and unremarkable when held up against the bright glare of the first combat detonation of the first weapon of the nuclear age. Now there are some numbers that are relevant here that to me help express why this contrast that we've made in the years since then, why that's so bizarre. The firebombing that I am referring to specifically that took place in Tokyo is a smaller operation that was part of a larger series of bombing raids that took place in Tokyo near the end of World War II. And this particular operation was called Operation Meeting House. And it was just one night, it was over the course of essentially portions of two days, and it left 80,000 to 100,000 people dead. And those numbers might be substantially larger depending on who you talk to, but the most reliable numbers that I could find were 80,000 to 100,000 dead as a result of Operation Meeting House, which was a firebombing raid that took place in Tokyo. And the numbers, again, these are very soft numbers, but these seem to be the most reliable and consistently referenced numbers that I could find. The number of dead in Hiroshima after the dropping of the atomic bomb there was 90,000 to 160,000. So 80,000 to 100,000 in Tokyo, 90,000 to 160,000 in Hiroshima. And then in terms of injured, there were over 100,000 injured in Tokyo, but maybe as high as a million injured and around 70,000 in Hiroshima. So there were probably a bit more deaths in Hiroshima, but there were substantially more injuries in Tokyo, it looks like. 
Now that said, Hiroshima was a far less densely populated area. There were about 35,000 people per square mile compared to Tokyo's 130,000 per square mile. So although the total number of deaths were comparable, give or take 10,000, the mortality rate per square mile was far different with the atomic bomb that was dropped killing 15,000 people per square mile, while the firebombing in Tokyo only killed about 5,300 per square mile. So the firebombings had about one-third of the effectiveness of the atomic bomb. The attacks in Tokyo hit a larger area and destroyed more overall square miles of city, about three times as much area, but the atomic bomb killed and injured about the same number of people in one-third the area. And it's thought that this is the case because, frankly, because the bombings took place over a longer period of time and it was over a wider area and it didn't all happen in an instant, people had a chance to escape even after the bombs were dropped, whereas the atomic bomb dropping left no chance for escape or preparation because it was just one bomb dropped from one plane, while the air assault that took place during Operation Meeting House involved 1,667 tons of explosives that were dropped from 279 planes. So in short, firebombing leads to a moderate chance of death over a very large area, while dropping an atomic bomb causes an incredibly high chance of death in a relatively small area, a 26 to 46 percent chance of death for people caught in the blast radius, depending on which numbers you use. And it's strange to call the area of impact for a nuclear weapon small, I know, but we're talking relative to a citywide firebombing campaign. So it's not small in an absolute sense. It's just relatively small compared to other military options of a large scale. But the numbers only tell part of the story here. First of all, and this is important to mention, because these are people, these are actually lives lost, and so Giving cold numbers in this way are meant as a means of comparison of the impact of these weapons, not as a value judgment. A single death is a travesty to people who are involved or to the person who lost their life. And so once we get up into numbers of this scale, we're obviously talking about the metrics of something rather than the meaning of something. So that's important to remember. This is not meant to diminish the impact of war or the impact of these instances in particular. It's meant to draw comparisons and to lead up to a bigger point. And the numbers also only tell part of the story because what they say is that these are different weapons useful for different situations that have different tactics involved with their use, just as sometimes a pistol is quote-unquote better in the tactical sense than a much more powerful bazooka. Sometimes nukes make more sense than a firebombing campaign, and sometimes the case is reversed. So looking at the numbers allows us to recognize that. And, and to me, it kind of presents as an inescapable reality that a lot of these decisions on which types of munitions to use when you are deciding to kill people are made based on these types of numbers, the sheer effectiveness in terms of debilitating an enemy or a group of people who are led by your perceived enemy, as is often the case. But the numbers fail to represent the sense of revulsion, I think, that many of us feel when we think about nuclear weapons in particular. And I think this sense goes beyond even the other logistical and technical differences between them and other types of artillery. 
There's a lot to be said about the long-term effects of radiation in the area and on its populace and the devastation that can be caused by the blast waves that emit from nuclear blast sites. But that's not what I'm getting at here. Those things are obviously horrible and devastating. But when we think about nukes, we're unlikely to be thinking about the literal consequences of fallout and of superheated blast waves. We're thinking about these weapons iconographically. We're using a caricature of a nuke as a stand-in for what the reality of using that device would actually be. And this mental shorthand results in a distinct psychological difference between using a nuke and using an equivalent amount of conventional explosives. The former, using a nuke, would be, at least according to current international policies, a great way to make oneself an international pariah. It would be a great way to get the world to turn against you. But the latter, using regular old bombs, but using enough of them that they have the same impact, the same literal explosive impact as a nuke, is kind of common enough these days to barely warrant a third-page mention in the newspaper at times. And this is one of those things that I think we, we kind of passively latently know. Dropping a nuke would be a big deal. Dropping a bunch of bombs, I mean, it happens all the time. So there might be aspects to that story that are interesting, but in general, we, we don't pay very close attention to that. But why is that? Why psychologically are nuclear weapons so much worse than conventional weapons? The ends, for most practical purposes, are very similar. Dead is dead. A destroyed city is a destroyed city. And yet we have a strong sense of moral panic when we consider using nukes or having nuclear weapons used against us, as opposed to that alternative. There are two other recent news items that are tangentially connected to this discussion and address that same type of moral revulsion from a slightly different standpoint. The first is from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Worst Chemical Attack in Years in Syria, U.S. Blames Assad. And the other is from the BBC, and it's entitled, Moab Strike, 90 IS Fighters Killed in Afghanistan. And Moab, by the way, is the acronym for the GBU-43-B Massive Ordnance Air Blast but it's very often referred to as the mother of all bombs. So looking at that first article, and I'll link to all of these in the show notes, by the way, if you don't want to Google search for them, but looking at that article about the chemical attack in Syria, why are chemical weapons, why are gas weapons worse than conventional weapons? And looking at that second article, why do we feel so weird about using something like the mother of all bombs? when it's really just a great big conventional bomb. And yet, when we use it, why is there no international outcry in the same way that there would be if we had used a similarly sized nuclear weapon? At what point do we cross the line from something like the Moab into nuke territory? Now, in 2007, the Russians announced they'd created a massive conventional bomb with four times the power of the Moab, which they called the father of all bombs. Does that cross the line into nuclear weapons territory if the Moab doesn't, even though it's not a nuclear weapon? Is there a destructiveness level that we have to reach before we start being 
psychologically disturbed about this type of weapon being used in the same way that we would if a nuke was used. It's worth mentioning that the comparison between the little boy bomb, which was the smaller of the two nukes dropped in Japan at the end of World War II, was a 16 kiloton bomb, meaning it had the explosive power of 16,000 tons of TNT. The Moab, which is not the biggest conventional bomb ever made, but it is the biggest conventional bomb ever used that we know of, is only an 11-ton bomb. So the smallest, most basic atomic bomb dropped a generation ago was a thousand times more powerful than the Moab. Nuclear weapons today are even crazier than that. The biggest nuke ever detonated was called the Tsar Bomba, and it was detonated by the Soviet Union in 1961. The blast of the Tsar Bomba was 3,333 times more powerful than that of the little boy atomic bomb, which again was itself 1,000 times more powerful than the Moab. So we're definitely not playing with equivalent power here. The difference in the scale of the blasts is huge. But the blast radius is quite similar, about a mile for both the Moab and for the little boy atomic bomb. And many modern nuclear weapons have tactical settings, which allow them to be dialed up or down in scale. So you can make their impact radius and overall detonation smaller, and therefore conceivably more usable in different situations. For example, if you want to use one, but you do not want to kill everything in an area the size of a city. They call these tactical nuclear weapons. So here's a pertinent question. If a nuke were scaled down to, let's say, half the power of the Moab, which bomb would be worse? And just a quick follow-up question, what if it were scaled down to be exactly equivalent, not just in blast radius, but also in size and impact and everything else, of the Moab? yet it was still a nuclear device rather than a conventional bomb. Which of these two bombs would be worse? Would we still have a psychological reaction to the nuclear weapon more so than the Moab? And those questions in mind, does it make sense that nuclear weapons are non-proliferated, that we go way out of our way to keep them from spreading to everyone who might want them? while great big conventional weapons like the Moab are not, or at least not as intensively. Let's leave that question there for a moment and take a bit of a side path, discussing something that is kind of completely different, but which eventually brings us back to the core of this topic. I'm going to point you towards two more articles, both of them from the New York Times. The first is entitled, quote, I screwed up, end quote. Sean Spicer apologizes for Holocaust comments. And the other is entitled, quote, What is Aleppo? End quote. Gary Johnson asks in an interview, Stumble. These Holocaust statements have been dog-eared by some commentators as the possible beginning of the end. For the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, he didn't just misspeak, he misspoke, then he misspoke about misspeaking, and all the awkward words were relating to an immensely uncomfortable subject that most people see as a almost cartoonishly monstrous and embarrassing moment in the history of modern society. His words were tethered to that feeling of horror and discomfort, and as a result, his misspeaking had a much larger impact than had he misspoke about, say, a shooting that took place at an Orlando nightclub, saying that it took place in Atlanta, 
He has also misspoken about this and about many other topics, but this Holocaust subject is a far more taboo one than even other vaguely taboo subjects like mass shootings. And in the eyes of the public, or at least of the press, that seemed to be a step too far. And I can't help but ask, is accidentally Holocaust deny, or accidentally presenting information that seems to rewrite what actually happened in a very public way and from a very official place of authority, is that worse than attaching oneself to other potentially very repugnant acts in a larger sense, say, by working for an administration and being the voice box for that administration in many different ways? that is doing a whole bunch of things that many people consider to be morally repugnant. Which is to say, many of the people that are calling for Spicer's head over this particular instance of flubbing are people who dislike him and dislike this administration that he represents in general. So why does this particular instance set him up to be taken down, while all the other instances, including if you buy into the idea that the administration he's part of is just wrong in some broader sense, working for an administration that's morally repugnant. Why isn't the outcry about the, for example, general mistreatment and demonization of the press or the blatant disregard for demonstrable facts, when these bigger issues are arguably far more vital in the bigger picture? Why focus on this one aspect, this one misstep? above and beyond all the bigger things that are more important. And on that same note, in Gary Johnson's case, why should a botched statement on a news program, a mistake, matter more than anything else that he's ever said? Now, I don't agree with Gary Johnson on many things, but I still felt that the response to this flub was overblown. It's as if we, we being the public, We're waiting for something clearly ridiculous, something that made him look stupid to happen, rather than assessing his actual views and then potentially calling him out as wrong in a more complex, legitimate way in order to bring him down. Instead, we waited for him to stumble in a silly way and used that as an excuse to do the same. And that seems to be true in Spicer's case as well. This moment was an opportunity to ridicule him for being immensely tone-deaf and saying hilariously wrong things, rather than attempting to pull him down, if that is your goal, with a more complex and arguably more important and true set of arguments. These public figures are attacked based on a moment that seems to encapsulate who they are, or which we're meant to believe does that and tells us something true about them. When in reality, these moments may not do that at all. And even if we don't like these people or agree with them in any way, we knock them off their pedestals for reasons that are not the actual reason that they shouldn't be there or that we believe they shouldn't be there. And that to me seems to diminish us, the people doing the ridiculing, because we're not addressing the actual issues. We're instead addressing something that is very petty or relatively petty and using that as the blunt instrument that we use to bludgeon their careers. So the question here is, why do we give so much more weight to ridiculous but largely unrepresentative statements and actions than those that are vastly more representative and meaningful? And why is it often more effective to embarrass someone out of a position of power 
than to use their legitimately disqualifying attributes to accomplish the same. Now, there's one more recent news item that I want to point at that again takes us in a slightly different direction while adding a little more bulk to this larger conversation. This is again from the New York Times, and it is entitled, Robert Bentley, Alabama Governor, Resigns Amid Scandal. And wow, what a scandal it was. The first paragraph of that piece summarizes the situation pretty well, I think. Quote, Governor Robert Bentley resigned Monday, his power and popularity diminished by a sex scandal that staggered the state, brought him to the brink of impeachment, and prompted a series of criminal investigations, end quote. I won't get into the details here, which are fairly sordid in nature, and involved what has to be one of the most bumbling efforts to cover up an affair ever documented for public scrutiny. I will link to more information about this in the show notes for those of you who want to go down that rabbit hole. But the broad strokes are that this was a guy who, by all accounts, did a fairly decent job overall as the governor of Alabama. And though he was a mixed bag politically, he fought against the legalization of same-sex marriage, but he also unilaterally took down four Confederate flags that were on state capitol grounds. So you could agree with him on some cases and disagree with him on others in terms of his politics. But he didn't seem to be a standout, corrupt, or horrible person. He was doing his job fairly well from a nonpartisan standpoint. But what brought him down, what caused him to resign, was a scandal that at least started out as something completely unrelated to his work. You could have a debate about the ethics of what he did within his marriage and how he treated his personal relationships. But the degree to which this sort of thing holds sway over public opinion and how even perceived personality flaws can impact one's professional life and politics is astounding. And as a result of this reality, and again, an incredibly bumbling effort to conceal the truth about matters from the public, former Governor Bentley went on to commit some real punishable crimes. And again, I'm in no way defending his actions here. But think about it this way. How often does a plumber get fired for cheating on his wife? Would a graphic designer start to lose clients if she cheated on her husband and that became public information? It's unlikely. These people are judged by their professional traits, not how well or badly they behave within their interpersonal relationships. But in politics, we judge these sort of things more harshly than we judge things like, well, the, the politician's political ethics and behavior. We're more likely to boot someone from office for cheating than for, say, deciding to bomb Yugoslavia despite protests from the United Nations. And former President Bill Clinton did just that in 1999. And although there have been many good arguments made in favor of these bombings, by many international standards, and to many people, including the nonpartisan international humanitarian organization Amnesty International, this bombing campaign was a war crime. And yet it's not actions of this kind that are tattooed on the records of politicians. Instead, it's their sexual indiscretions that follow them around. The so-called witch hunt that went after Bill Clinton post-Monica Lewinsky scandal was indeed a very politically motivated thing. But the fact that it was so successful in its goals, the Republicans leading the hunt did not knock him out of office as they had hoped 
but they did tarnish his name and his reputation and his place in history. And that speaks volumes about how effective this kind of approach can be. Again, a grocery store employee would not lose their job for having an affair. And though the eventual charges were about lying, about an affair, not the affair itself, Clinton was in the position to lie in the first place because bringing up his interpersonal misdeeds was a sharp enough stick to make him jump and do stupid things in an attempt to hide other, arguably non-politically relevant, stupid things he'd already done in his personal life. So why is sexual misconduct worse than legal or political misconduct? Or asked a slightly different way, why is sexual misconduct a more actionable offense than legal or political misconduct? Why is it that politicians can waltz away from the biggest scams and scandals when they take place in the political sphere, but often have trouble avoiding the blowback from a sexual dalliance when the former is directly related to their job and the latter is not? Why are some types of crimes perceived to be worse than others, even when the weight of the ones that we don't focus on is so much more immense? Why aren't the bankers who collapsed the global economy in 2007 and 2008 in jail, but people who smoke pot are? Why do we perceive things this way? Why do our equivalency metrics become so frazzled and unreliable when it comes to certain types of issues? We're looping back around to those earlier points that I was making. Why do we put more significance in the way devastation or death is delivered from one bomb instead of hundreds, rather than using the devastation itself to guide our judgment. I can think of a few different reasons why this is the case, and some will be true in just some cases, but almost always there will be more than one reason. I think that we do this partly because of a lack of widespread understanding of complex issues, and this in turn is due to flaws in our communication channels and to our finite amount of attention. But consequently, headlines are very often more impactful and influential than articles, and the concept of a nuclear weapon is more impactful than a deep story about a city leveled using conventional weaponry over a broader span of time. Anything that can be reduced to an icon or a caricature holds more weight, despite it sometimes being the less dense, less vital thing to understand and fixate on. I think this is also partly due to asymmetric warfare that takes place within these higher offices and by those outside of these higher offices looking for ways to influence what happens in politics and otherwise. Which means that there are a lot of levers that are being pushed to help amplify some types of stories over others. And it's in many people's interest to knock certain politicians from their podiums. And it's in many people's interest to put drug users away, while far more destructive, crime-committing bankers walk the streets, and retain their ill-gotten gains. I think part of the reason we focus on what we focus on is due to pure, unadulterated schadenfreude. We like to see people with whom we disagree, or people with power in general, fall. It kind of feels good on a visceral level to see a mistake made and a fall from a great height suffered, much like seeing somebody in a funny video get kicked in the crotch. It's not something many of us would admit to, I think, but it does play a role because scandal titillates and interpersonal scandal that we can relate to to a certain degree titillates even more so. 
and the fact that these powerful people can be brought down to earth, down with us, with the same concerns and considerations that we have, I think entices us and captures our attention a whole lot more than a drama that involves a complex debate about the ethics of the banking system or international diplomatic missteps. I think this is partly due to ratings and click-based media economics. Scandals almost always do better in this regard in terms of earning money than cold, rational think pieces. This is something I dwell on a lot in regard to a lot of different issues, I know, but it's also something that shapes a whole lot of our discourse, and that's no different in this case. I think we fixate the way that we do partly due to our subconscious tethering of some aspects of morality to other aspects of morality. We think that if this person cannot be trusted not to cheat on their wife, why should we trust them to handle the nuclear codes? These two things are not actually connected or in any way equivalent, but it's easy and almost reflexive to assume such equivalencies. And this is the same tendency that makes us want to like our president, when in reality, it may be the person who we would least like to get a beer with, who would be the most effective leader. It's easy for our metrics to become entangled in this way, and for us to use the wrong metrics in a given situation, and as a result, we start to judge someone's fitness for, say, running the country, based on their actions in a completely unrelated aspect of life. It's also more difficult to punish white-collar people, white-collar criminals like bankers who cause way more damage than a casual drug user, because of the way our system, and I'm speaking of the broad, average, liberal democracy slanted global system here, is set up. It is rigged in many ways to favor people in power and people with wealth. And consequently, although more damage is done quite often by an unscrupulous banker than someone who is smoking pot in their own home, the latter is far more likely to be punished, just as someone who gets in a fight at a bar will be more likely to suffer legal consequences for that than a politician who commits something that is technically a war crime. It's also more difficult to punish people for things that are only vaguely illegal, and maybe not illegal at all, but perhaps just morally repugnant. And this applies to things like so-called war crimes that aren't officially, legally, punishably war crimes, and even to a private citizen who destroys the reputation of another private citizen by getting them labeled as a pedophile or something along those lines. There are ways in which you can make such accusations and make such labels stick without it being technically illegal to do so. And especially now, with all the relatively new tools we have casual access to, the rule of law is having trouble keeping up with the reality of wrongdoing in a way that allows horrible people to be punished for doing horrible things. And finally, we're more likely to incite public backlash for emotionally wrong things than for technically wrong things. And this is why sex scandals are more effective at knocking down powerful people than actual, non-tabloid-ish scandals. There was a research project called The Influence of Discrete Emotions on Judgment and Decision-Making, a Meta-Analytic Review, which was a project for which the authors essentially went back and took stock of all the existing research on the subject of how emotions impact how we perceive things and make decisions. And this showed that many emotions can influence our choices and how we respond to things, how we respond to new data. But sadness, guilt, and disgust 
in particular, seem to sway us fairly dramatically, almost always. And as such, shaping a story in such a way that it evokes those feelings in readers could change how they view the data that is being presented. So equivocating marital betrayal with a person's overall character can be a remarkably effective way to change the public's perception of that person. And that's in regard to all things, even things they're demonstrably good at, as opposed to relationships which they are demonstrably not great at. So if you want to change the public's perception of a well-liked politician, present a storyline that associates that person with sadness, guilt, or disgust, and you have a pretty good chance of reframing them in the public's eyes. And one more concept worth bringing up here is what's called the effect heuristic. That's effect with an A, which refers to the psychological term effect, which means the experience of having a feeling or emotion. So it's not sadness or happiness that falls under this umbrella, it's the experience of being sad or happy. And the idea here is that we use the experience of how we feel in the moment, the affect, as a mental shortcut, as a heuristic when making decisions. And as a result, if you can control a person's experience, say by amping up the experience of feeling revulsion when exposed to a public figure's salacious sex life, then you can control how they act, what they actually do in real life, how they vote, perhaps. And it's a safe bet that a lot of how we respond to many things, not just sex scandals, but also, for instance, when someone presents embarrassingly incorrect details about the Holocaust, is a consequence of either intentional or unintentional manipulation of this psychological propensity. It happens by itself all the time, but it's an easy button to push for those who are aware of its potential impact on public opinion. So when assessing these types of situations, it's worth asking one more question, above and beyond the question of why we perceive one thing as worse than another. And that question is, what are the desired ends here in this situation? And who benefits from telling this particular story in this way? I'm inclined to believe, for instance, that when it comes to asymmetric tools like nuclear missiles or militarized gases or bioweapons, the desired ends for those currently in power, those who are militarily dominant conventionally, is to keep anything that might challenge that dominance out of most hands and away from common use, making use of the reflexive awe and revulsion we have about some of these things helps maintain that stability. This is part of the theory behind nuclear non-proliferation, that we should keep these weapons that a double handful of nations have from spreading to all other nations. How is nuclear non-proliferation fair for the nations that don't have them? And the answer is it's not fair, but in theory, it maintains the peace because the nations with them are given a responsibility to keep the world from spinning off its axis. The United Nations, arguably, even beyond its nuclear non-proliferation role, was formed with that same intent to lock in the current power structure and ensure that nothing knocks it off kilter, ostensibly for the greater good, but also, no doubt, for the elite nations who benefit from the current state of affairs and who help put such institutions and rules into place. And that may come across as a somewhat cynical way of looking at these concepts and institutions, but I want to be clear here. I'm not saying this is wrong. 
I'm saying these are complex issues and that these things are presented as means of achieving one type of goal while they also attain another goal that isn't generally brought up or talked about. They can be both at the same time. That secondary goal, that of reinforcing the current status quo, does not reduce in any way the benefits of the first goal, that of keeping everyone in the world from getting their hands on nukes, while also giving nations a place to talk through issues rather than fighting. Like a lot of topics that I bring up on this show, this one is as much about an awareness of our own perception, how we act and how we filter, as it is about understanding how the world beyond our internal ruminations operates. One helps inform the other. The more we understand the world and can see the moving pieces in the world, the better we are able to recognize what is influencing us and our decisions and our perceptions and nudging us toward choices that we, lacking such nudges, wouldn't necessarily make. And that's as firm a stance as I want to take on many of these issues, because frankly, everyone, absolutely everyone, is both a target and a perpetrator when it comes to this sort of framing. We, as individuals, set up false equivalencies all the time, both in our own minds and when relating something that happened to friends. We apportion the wrong amount of concern to issues that don't actually matter, at the expense of not worrying about those that do. And we express ideas and concerns with the intention of making others do the same. It's a casual use of manipulation that we wouldn't ever have any reason to notice ourselves doing or falling prey to unless perhaps we could figure out a way to attach these concepts and these habits of noticing to something bigger and more concrete. And what helps me keep this tendency in mind are things like nuclear weapons and political witch hunts. But it may be something different for you. What's more important than the specifics of those heuristics that we use, of how we each make it stick, is that we are doing so in some way, and that we are noticing, and that we are utilizing that knowledge appropriately. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show. That means it is brought to you by you. If you go to letsnotethings.com and click on contribute, you'll find a bunch of different ways to help support the show. An easy way to do so right now while you're thinking about it is to stop by iTunes and leave a review or to share it on your social media account of choice. That helps a great deal and it only takes about a minute. You can also contribute directly monetarily through PayPal or Venmo. The links for that are on the website. And if you are the bookish sort, or if you are not currently but want to become the bookish sort, consider stopping by colin.io. There you'll find a list of the books that I've written, including my brand new book that is coming out a week after this episode goes live called Becoming Who We Need to Be. Purchasing my books helps me continue to produce more books, but also projects like this podcast. So thank you very much for your support, whatever shape it might take. All of these things help me continue to do the work that I do, and I appreciate it. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. I am a huge book fan. I love to read paperback books. I love to read on my Kindle, and I am a recent convert over to audiobooks as well. Certain types of books I really enjoy taking in this way, particularly when I'm going for a walk or when I'm cooking, when I'm on a road trip. 
And if you are interested in giving audiobooks a shot, and if you enjoy podcasts, I'm guessing you will enjoy audiobooks, a great way to do so is to go to audibletrial.com slash LKT. And if you use that link, you'll get a free 30-day trial to the service and a free audiobook of your choice from their massive collection. And it is a very massive collection if you don't have a book already in mind to choose from that collection. Might I recommend the book Ishmael by Daniel Quinn? And Daniel Quinn is kind of a sociologist philosopher. And this is one book in a three-book pseudo-series. The other books are called My Ishmael and the Story of B. And all three are pretty good. Ishmael is my favorite. And this was a book that I read back in high school. And it was probably my first ever encounter with certain ideas, like the development of agriculture being the first step toward civilization and the development of essentially a fake world, an imagined world atop the natural world and the step that humanity took away from the laws of nature, the pseudo-laws of nature that seemed to govern all other living creatures, we moved away from those as soon as we developed agriculture. And there's a lot of great big ideas in this book like that. This is one of those books that people tend to read and then buy copies for all of their friends because uh, it's got a lot of very interesting ideas that are presented in a fictional story that involves a telepathic gorilla And it sounds very weird, but it all makes sense once you pick it up. It's a very easy-to-ingest book. It's a good read in addition to being a very interesting read. And again, that's Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. It is worth reading in whatever format. If you want to grab it at your library, your local indie bookstore, grab it on your Kindle or your Kobo. But you can also get an audiobook version of this for free if you go to audibletrial.com. And the other sponsor today is HostGator, the hosting company that I use for all of my online properties. This is a great company to work with, my favorite of all of the dozen or so that I've worked with over the years. I've transferred most of my properties, my domain names and such, over to HostGator in the years since I started working with them. And their prices are already great to begin with, but if you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of their normal prices. It's hostgator.com slash LKT. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. And while there, you can consider signing up for the Let's Know Things newsletter, which goes out every Monday and which is essentially just a collection of links to interesting things. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com and you can follow me on pretty much every social network in existence at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.